When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Godot versus the Machines edition. It's Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. On today's show, The Mitchells versus the Machines, it's an animated would be blockbuster. It's about an ordinary family called upon to save the world from a robot apocalypse. It's yet more shrewd content from the producer team behind the Lego and 21 Jump Street movies. You can find it on Netflix. And then the original portmanteau couple may be back. Social media rumor has it. We discuss the cultural resonances of Benefer, the romance between Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. And I'm not even really being sarcastic. Like, it has deeper cultural resonances. And finally, Waiting for Godot, the great play by Samuel Beckett about being stuck in place has gotten a new production suited for a pandemic lockdown. We discuss a very Zoomy Godot with Isaac Butler. Uh, I rate Isaac a, I think he's a hit fop, a high-toned friend of the program. (laughs) There's just something so high-toned about Isaac Butler. Anyway, can I hear an an amen? (laughs) Or just derisive laughter. No, that was a uh, 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 laudatory laughter. Oh, that was a lot. Of, okay, I got. I still don't know the difference from you, Julia. But uh, Julia Turner is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate dot com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. The Mitchells versus the Machines is an animated movie. It's from the producers of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the Lego movies, 21 Jump Street. They're Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. They are bidding to be, I think, maybe the sequel to Pixar by making animated blockbuster spectacles with a human heart. This one is some very cannily delivered satire attainment. What if an amusingly dysfunctional goober family had to save the world from AI run amok? The Mitchells are, they're kind of slobs as the movie depicts them. They tend to get everything a little wrong as a family. This makes them, of course, relatable. The dad is a goofus who can't use a computer. Mom is a hyper-competent sweetie nerd that turns into a mama bear if her kids are endangered. The older sister is a weirdo misfit. The younger brother, a charming innocent, and their dog is cute. But are they up to saving humanity? A callow tech bro, it seems, has unleashed a robot apocalypse, headed up by a kind of a Siri figure in the movie. It's called Pal and voiced by the wonderful Olivia Coleman. Pal's plan is to encase every member of our species in a little luminescent cell, then upload us to a giant glowing honeycomb, and then launch us en masse into deep space. Can this one doofy family evade the panopticon and save all of us? It's voiced by Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, Olivia Coleman, among many, many others. Let's listen to a clip. Kids, are you okay? Remember our survival training. Yankee, Alpha, Foxtrot, Bravo, Tango, Alpha, Alpha, Alpha. Aaron, your codename is Sweet Boy. Mine is Protector Pride. Your mother is the Crimson Scorpion. You're, you're walking away. What are these, robots? Greetings, humans. There appears to be 14 of you. Doesn't seem good that they're counting us, right? We have food and entertainment for you to enjoy in our human fun pods. Who here likes fun? Hey, I like fun. Trust me, bud, you do not like fun. No, I really do like it. Everyone says that about me. You lucky human. (laughs) Yay! Wow, I wish I could be in there. I don't like fun anymore! Who else wants to join (laughs) them? Oh, dear, I guess... Making us laugh already. Dana, the challenge of uh, such a movie is sort of the same one facing the Mitchells in the movie to rescue a recognizably human story from computer animation and a $100 million budget. Did they uh, Did they do it? Steve, before I answer, I have to throw out one important title that you missed in your rundown of the Lord and Miller verse, the, the producers of this movie who produced so many other great animated movies. Uh, you mentioned the Lego movie, but not Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which we discussed on this show and which, when it came out a couple years ago, really kind of blew the minds of both animation heads and superhero heads. We 
as we talked about on the show, I don't think that I was quite as crazy about that movie as you guys were, but I think that more has to do with my own burnout on, you know, any sort of iteration of superheroes. And even I could not deny that the animation and the movement and the sort of dynamic spectacle of the Spider-Verse was, was really, really unusual. And so I think that's a good reference for this movie, not because this movie quite reaches that level of ambition, but it has that same dynamic energy. And so just to sort of describe what you're seeing as you, you heard that that audio clip we just played. Um, this movie is full of, um, it's, this is going to sound so cacophonous and awful, but it's actually extremely pleasurable. But this movie is full of emojis, um, sort of animations of upon animations, projections of characters' imaginations onto what you're seeing. So there's these kind of all these layers of, of color and movement and um, kind of explosion const- constantly in this movie, which to some degree I feel like with small children might make it hard to follow, but does not have the expected effect of sort of making your brain turn off Transformer style. And I think that's just because the script is really strong, the voice work is strong, and there are good characters all the way through. So the story remains clear and the heart of the story is this family, even when you can't quite track exactly who is putting who into honeycomb rockets to be launched into space. I really, really love this movie. I, I'm not sure that it's the greatest little kid movie because it is a little hard to follow and sensorially overwhelming, especially maybe in a movie theater. But I think once you got your kid got to be about eight, nine, uh, maybe a little younger if they were a very tech savvy and uh, and superhero friendly kid. Um, this would be great family viewing. And I'm excited that these guys are starting to have their own little fiefdom in the animation world because I love their spirit. This isn't quite the Lego movie, but that is one of my favorite animated movies of the century so far. <laughs> so so that, that would be saying a lot. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I adored Spider-Verse. I felt like I felt like I was watching the future and watching a technological innovation in filmmaking. And I'm like not even a person really with opinions about animation, believe it or not, but um, despite despite my having opinions about everything. But, um, you know, it felt almost like when we were trying virtual reality somehow, like it just felt like such a fresh and exciting visual style. Um, And the level of the writing and the humor is so consistently, um, I don't know, smart, not treacly, you know, satisfying, witty, but has a has more heart than the kind of rimshot sarcasm of the Avengers, uh, the early the early Marvel universe. Uh, I just love it. And then I also think it's really fascinating that their different animated projects have such different visual styles. You know, they're they're writers and producers but somehow they partner with different directors. So the director here in Mitchell versus the machine, the Mitchells versus the machines is a first time feature director, Mike Rianda. Um, the visual surprise of these Lord and Miller movies combined with the satisfying craftsmanship of their screenwriting is just really delightful. And I, I longtime listeners to this program will know that my children who are eight year old boys, like don't, like watching movies, one of them just finds the stakes too high and too emotionally wrenching. And the other one is starting to get into movies, but only old monster movies. Like he just wants to watch like Godzilla movies in Japanese, (laughs) which is especially not compatible for the other one who finds the stakes too high. Um, So anyway, I, on, on Saturday morning, I sat down and was like, guys, we're doing family movie tonight. It's mandatory. Got to watch this for the show. We're going to have family time. And one of them burst into tears. (laughs) I was like, you always make us know. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, how have we raised children this far? Won't watch movies with us. This is terrible. Um, But we did in fact force them to watch the movie and they both loved it and delighted in it. So I think your, your age appropriate gauge was correct there Dana um, and they just were tickled like cracking up laughing at a lot of the different visual jokes and found you know there's a scary plot but it's not rendered in particularly scary fashion I don't know I start just strong recommend for this film yeah it's terrific I agree I mean I recommended here's my life situation vis-a-vis this movie I recommended family movie night and instead ended up watching waiting for Godot alone with a laptop you know, just everyone repaired to their corner and their own screen, and I couldn't. I couldn't get a teenage, you know, well now legal adult teenage daughter 
with access to a car to uh, agree to stick around and watch it. But, uh, but that's the, the story of the movie. That's it's, exactly, a, it's a father-daughter relationship. That's where I was going, Dana. Still your fire. Uh, no, it's okay. It's uh, uh it's so easily uh, pilfered. But um, anyway, um, I I know it's it's what's not to love, right? I mean, it's like it depicts our world as, you know, this hideous panopticon of our own devising. It's very wise about that, without being too knowing or you know, uh, sly about it. Uh, it's like a one social media is one giant machine for generating envy. The movie knows what it's up to. Is very smart about it. And, uh, but as you say, Dana, at the heart of it is, I mean, this is the Pixar move and they've made it their own. These producers, I don't mean to place them in the shadow of Pixar, but they, they are very good at embedding the relatable pathos driven human story at the center of it. And this one is about a father and a daughter, a daughter who's getting ready to leave home in her own mind for good because of how alienatingly negative she finds her father about her dreams to be a filmmaker. What? What's the face? Uh, well, I just wonder, do you really think you can make a living with this stuff? Dad, can you finish watching it at least? I will, but... You know, he finds his misfit artsy daughter completely mystifying, and the movie only works if, you know, and I resisted it, too. I felt, oh, no, I mean, I saw it coming a mile away. This is so manipulative. All the beats of the movie are going to be about them drawing closer and and repairing their relationship. That's, I mean, you know, it was it was knowing exactly how the paint by color schema is going to get filled in and you know exactly what the painting is when you're you know going to see it completed what it's going to look like and then at this i was still fighting the lump in my throat by the end of it it like i was like oh, screw them they got me I wonder, though, what you guys think about the technophobia versus technophilia of this movie, because it would be so easy for a film like this to feel like it's scolding about technology. I mean, the villain, to the extent there is a villain, is technology and those who make technology, even though they're not terribly demonized. Siri goes rogue and is played by Olivia Coleman, essentially. Right. I mean, it's imagining this Alexa, Siri-like, you know, uh, servant robot that sort of achieves sentience and resentfully takes over the world. And because it's voiced by Olivia Coleman and kind of animated as this charming little bouncing phone, um, it never seems that scary. But I just wonder, especially, Steve, given that you, I sort of identify you with the dad character in this movie, right? Because he's this <laughs> mild technophobe, but somebody who is willing for the sake of love to overcome his resistance to yub tub, as he calls YouTube, <laughs> and figure out, in fact, there's a big action sequence that hinges on him learning to just type a URL into a browser. So I wonder how you, as maybe the most technophobic or at least tech hesitant of the three of us, uh, felt about that that aspect of the movie. I It would be easy to be a critical snob about the cake and eat it to attitude towards technology of the movie. But in fact, that's our attitude. You know, it's on Netflix. That's how we're watching it. We're surrounded by technology. Our lives are enabled. We are cyborgs. We are now information age cyborgs. It's perfectly fine to opt out of that, but 99.9% of us don't. We all opt in and derive a benefit from it to try to salve our conscience by saying, oh, you know, by being a technophobic Luddite. I mean, that ship, for most of us, sailed a long time ago, and I thought the movie was actually quite... uh, It achieved an interesting equilibrium in in its satire on the degree to which we, by opting in, end up compromising our own privacy and perhaps our own sense of agents in the world, right? We're just watched and nudged all the time with an acknowledgement that we're all using technology, we're, 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 we're using technology all the time, including the movie's meta about this. The girl, the misfit daughter, uh, makes movies using technology. Her creativity is expressed using the technology, which is you know, a more rudimentary version of the technology being employed to make this creative thing, the movie itself. And so I thought, you know, I, 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 at the end, I, I, I thought the movie kind of nailed that balance in a weird way. Julia, what'd you think? Wow, Steve, I'm not sure I realized that um, in addition to becoming someone who loves television, you've become someone who does not loathe technology in quite the same way that you did several years ago, or at least have a more balanced view of it. <laughs> Although I guess after this pandemic year, we all do. Um, it's it's I... finally it's finally drained off the last of my humanity, Julia. Congratulations <laughs> to you and your cyborg fraternity Rob- of one. I welcome Robot Steve. All right, we like this movie. It's the Mitchells versus the Machines. 
And it's on Netflix. Check it out. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do we uh, what do we have this week? Steve, the business this week is just to tell our listeners that if you are a Slate Plus member, please stick around afterwards for a special segment about the return of live theater. Because we have Slate's own Isaac Butler, uh, who is our expert on all things theatrical, he is going to stick around to talk about the reopening of Broadway. Tickets are already on sale now for Broadway shows that are opening in the fall. We're going to talk about what that says about the theater industry more broadly and what is the future of the stage in our age. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that after the show. And if you're not, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus one dollar for your first month for access to ad free podcasts and exclusive plus only content like the aforementioned bonus segment again you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus and if you're already a slate plus member thank you so much for your support and please send us ideas for future slate plus segments we always love hearing from you all right back to the show like the cicadas after 17 years of dormancy benifer has <laughs> resurfaced that's was, the best introduction you've ever written, bar none. I was so hoping someone would, would get me. That oh, is, uh, I have to point out that that was also the lead of the LA Times piece on the subject. But. No! Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. I promise, I promise I did not plagiarize it. I didn't, I didn't read, that, read that, even if it may have been in our prep materials. Okay. Um, anyway, continuing on, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez appear to be back together. And for those of you who don't remember, for whatever reason, before Brangelina and Kimye, there was Benifer. The couple fell for one another while making the movie Jiggly. Is that how that's pronounced? I seem to remember it is. Jiggly, right? Jiggly. Oh, there we go. Yes. So, so sorry. Um, it was an epic bomb. They became a huge pre-social media thing, though, as a couple, a fixture in the tabloids and on tabloid TV. He appeared in her music video, Jenny from the Block. It was a whirlwind romance, and here's the thing about whirlwinds. They're made of air. No sooner were they engaged to be married than they were done. Dana, among the many things I love and admire about you is your casual and repeated use of the word portmanteau. Can you define it for us? Uh, I can't believe you ta- asked me the first question on the benefit topic. <laughs> well, I gave you what I would think of as a Dana Stevens softball. I actually, now I'm curious about the, the etymology of portmanteau, this specific usage of portmanteau. I mean, a portmanteau is just is simply a, a suitcase, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a coat carrier, literally. But I do feel like that um, the, the comp- compulsive need to not only watch celebrity couples, but turn their names into weird name sandwiches began around the time of the first benefit, I think we can venture to say, in the early 2000s. They did, they did predate Brangelina. I think that's true. And I and previously Ben Affleck had dated Gwyneth, and I don't think we had Gwyneth. <laughs> it's not like back in early Hollywood history where they were taking Bogart and Bacall and squishing them in, into you know Bogal or something like that. Hump <laughs> <laughs> floor. Oh dear! I look. I set this whole thing up saying there were deeper cultural resonances. Julia, I turn to you to tell us what those are. Okay. All right. I am delighted by this story. So we got to get a little modern backstory of these two figures who, you know, rose to prominence in the in the very early aughts and now have been with us for 20 years. We've got Ben Affleck, who after breaking up with Jennifer Lopez, eventually found his way to another Jennifer, Jennifer Garner, married her, had a bunch of kids, divorced her, has been public about his struggles with alcoholism, uh, spent a bunch of the pandemic dating Ana de Armas, uh, spawning the portmanteau banana, which <laughs> which we can all agree is a good one. Uh, I told were, you you should have asked Julia first, Steve. <laughs> they were, you know, much observed drinking Dunkin' Donuts as Ben Affleck is. You know, I think uh, after his um, kind of the seediness of his divorce from Jennifer Garner, who herself has, I don't know, just just become like this delightful internet phenomenon who seems like an authentic celebrity dork in a very charming way. Um, but 
also seems to have sort of an amicable divorce with this struggling middle-aged alcoholic. Um, You know, I think people sort of root for Ben Affleck said Zachary a little bit a few years later. Um, And he and Ana de Armas broke up and there was a scene where his, he had like a life-size cardboard cutout of Anna de Armas that was in his trash can after the breakup. <laughs> and then there was the scene of him like coming out looking very dad bod and picking up like a DoorDash delivery of Duncan on his doorstep and looking sort of hostile like he'd just come out of the sun for the first time in eight months. Um, anyway, so there's a little bit of like, ooh, poor Ben in in the atmosphere. Meanwhile, then we've got Jennifer Lopez who is just this, you know, dominant cultural tycoon with this amazing performance in Hustlers, great Super Bowl halftime show a couple years ago, you know, seeming competent, dating Alex Rodriguez for many years. And then there are these rumors this spring that they're maybe on the rocks, maybe they're not. Seems like Alex Rodriguez had an affair or some kind of dalliance with some sort of um, reality TV star. And anyway, finally, Alex and J-Lo do break up, you know, a couple months ago. So we've got these like people we've known for decades, whose relationships we've followed, both newly single and ready to mingle. And what should emerge? What to our wondering eyes should appear? But a photo of the two of them appearing to be in the back of or near the same white SUV causing tantalized, tantalized interest across the celebrity internet, particularly among people of a certain generation, aka my exact micro generation. And then what should follow? What to our wondering years should follow? But the, the word that they have decamped to Wyoming or Idaho or somewhere picturesque in the Northwest for a week of hanging together. And what to my wondering heart should appear, but a deep interest and and uh, like rooting for this celebrity couple to get back together when I did not give a crap about them the first time around. And in fact, I was sort of very skeptical and thought they were overhyped and thought they were, I don't know, dumb or I, like I just was not a stan for this couple in the early aughts and thought it was stupid that they were getting so much attention. And now... I want nothing more than for them to fall in love. And why? Why do I care? I don't know. And so that to me is the fundamental mystery. And, you know, I think there's a few a few possible theories. I mean, just initially thinking about it, whatever, the notion that the that the old flame, that there was something that you never worked out with the old flame and maybe as an older and wiser self, there is something that could work out as like a romantic one. Like that's a good plot right? Just generally in life. Um, the notion of uh, post-divorce love and or, or companionship or post-split romance is also, you know, a sign of rebirth after a time of darkness, which is a cultural moment we maybe find ourselves in more generally and abstractly. Um, and then Meredith Blake, one of our TV reporters here at the LA Times, wrote this wonderful piece last week, sort of assessing a very similar question in which she pointed out, she argued that the reason we're obsessed with this now is because we fucked it up so badly last time. And she went back and read a ton of the coverage of their romance the first time around. And it was just like deeply racist and um, stupid and like really dismissive of like Jenny from the block who used to date Diddy ensnaring, uh, you know, this nice Boston guy who used to date Gwyneth. Like, there was just a lot of racist bullshit in the dismissiveness of um, the coverage of them the first time out. And so she argues that it's sort of a chance for a for a do-over for these two, which I found persuasive and compelling. Interesting. I mean, I think it's just once again been proven that the wrongest thing ever said was when F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, there are no second acts in American lives. It's like American lives are made of nothing but second, third, fourth, fifth acts. It's like we don't even have first acts, right? This country is a country, it's a society like built on do-overs where Europe's do-over. It's just a do-over culture. And this is another do-over. Julia, I think you're right. Like it was, first of all, it was completely racist. Uh, Diane Sawyer on her primetime live uh, intro to her interview with Jennifer Lopez back in 2002 said that called Lopez the racy, impetuous pop star. She the racy, impetuous pop star with that flashy ex-boyfriend, not to mention two marriages. He the towering actor who romanced an uptown goddess. 
<laughs> just the idea of Ben Affleck as a towering actor. I mean, God love him, but that's not exactly where I would first class him. I mean, he's physically very tall. I mean, kind of the lovable thing about Affleck is is he's just the ultimate af- alpha male package with kind of a weird ultimate beta male inside. Like he's ba- he's, and he's proven in you know, Goodwill Hunting was pr- prophetic in this regard. He's just proven to be utterly beta to Matt Damon, who has emerged as a absolutely bona fide A-list Hollywood movie star, whereas Affleck is just kind of, you know, he can win an Oscar for directing a movie, and he still just doesn't really emerge fully as an as an alpha. And so, in addition to race, there was this gender aspect, which is that he was widely perceived, as I re- reread this coverage now, Ben Affleck at the time was widely perceived as having been somehow emasculated by Lopez, who was also depicted, in addition to being, like, depicted as trashy. She's not trashy, but she was depicted as trashy. Also kind of as a Lady Macbeth, like highly manipulative of Affleck. In the video, he kisses her butt, um, you know, f- literally, but also... The like, Jenny fig- from the Block video you're talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. And and uh, and his career took this huge hit. I mean, as do-overs go, this isn't a bad one to have because it was flubbed so badly. The Call me skeptical, though, because I somehow do not believe that social media will get right what Us Weekly got wrong the first time around, but... Um, well, it'll, but it might get different things wrong. I mean, I'll also just say, yeah. you're right to point out the sexism and the and the emasculation as well and the coverage. Um, and if you look at the long arc of Ben Affleck's romantic life, it's like he's dated these very type A women. Like he dated mm-hmm. Gwyneth, he dated Jennifer yeah. Lopez, he dated Jennifer Garner. Like, you know, Anadaramis is kind of on the come up. Like I, a friend of mine who pointed this out, I was like... Yeah, I joined that book club. Like that's a that's a, <laughs> that's a bunch of like badass women. Like he's not yeah. afraid yeah. to to date and romance like alphas, alpha women, right. which right. as uh, I find to be an admirable quality in a man, even a man with uh, with struggles. And so, yeah, the the there was sort of sexism inherent in that coverage too. Right. And also, by the way, I want to add it just shows how preposterous and in their own way anachronistic categories like alpha and beta are when applied to men i mean it you know it a str- only a strong man can you know date slash stay with slash marry a, a strong self-possessed woman like that's a form of masculine strength not weakness and it's fucked up to think otherwise yeah julia i was thinking about what you said about you know the first time around you you're not rooting for this couple and now you don't understand why you are there's a whole wonderful piece in slate by heather schwedell who's one of our you know best celebrity spotters and chroniclers i think on slate uh, about that fact just revisiting the facts that from a sheer popularity point of view nobody was really rooting for them the first time and that could have been because of the coverage it could have been because of the general tone of tabloids back then which were always negative i mean we've talked about this in relation to britney spears recently the documentary about britney spears that you know, gossip in the early 2000s was just vicious. I mean, in particular about women and about race and class, but really just putting people in the spotlight was an, an act of violence in the in the early 2000s in a way that I think social media has changed. And I'm not trying to, you know, cover this with hearts and rainbows, Mitchell and the Machine style and say that that makes everything better. But I think that fandom organizes itself in a very different way now that we have these places to congregate online. Um, I mean, I'm pretty disinvested from this couple both times around, but it is fascinating to see that people still care and that they maybe even care more and care in a different way than they did 17 years ago. Can I just can I just button the segment by saying I just did a word search of our prep document for cicada and it appears at least two or three times. I, but I swear to God, I'll, I'll cop to the laziness with which I read the prep material and not to being a plagiarist. I, I really. Um, it's it's just a good it's just a good joke. It's just a natural joke. I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's there for the picking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll also just say that the stakes of rooting, quote unquote, rooting for a couple or shipping a couple at this phase of our lives and theirs feel different. Like, if all that happens is they had a fun week in in the scenic Northwest, like, great. That sounds like a great way to unwind from your very public breakup. If they never see each other again, that sounds great. If they stay together for the rest of their lives, that sounds great. Like, you know, there's something about this phase of their lives where it's like, find some connection, have some fun, you know. And and I think we're slightly less attached to the, like, walk down the aisle, happily ever after mode of covering celebrity romance and understanding celebrity romance, but um, it's also the phase in life that they're at that makes it feel like uh, easy to root for because you can define 
quote unquote victory in any way you want. All Maybe right. they'll just gather together every 17 years for a, a week of romance, <laughs> like the cicadas. <laughs> I love it, Ben, for a swipe right. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are we still human? Mitchell versus the machine says yes. Samuel Beckett said, alas, we are. We are still bored, codependent, exploitative, and maybe above all, waiting waiting, 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 waiting for Godot, was a head-scratcher, a confounding what's-it when it first appeared in 1953. During its first English-language production, actors asked Beckett himself what he meant by it, and he basically said, fuck if I know. It's a very Beckettian answer, if you think about it, but it has since become a staple of the canon. It's even been voted the most significant English-language play of the 20th century. A new production from the new group has arrived. Uh, They're an off-Broadway theater group. They have transferred Beckett's meditation on human claustrophobia into the heightened claustrophobias of the small screen in a time of pandemic lockdown. This version stars Ethan Hawke as Vladimir, John Leguizamo as Estragon. They're the two archetypal Tramps at the center of the play. It also features Tariq Trotter as Pazzo and Wallace Shawn as Lucky. It's directed by Scott Elliott. In the clip we're about to hear, uh, we get uh, Leguizamo and Hawk riffing on the supposed imminence of Godot. I'm curious to, to, to hear what he has to offer. And then you know, we'll take it or leave it. Uh, what, what exactly did we ask him for? Were you not there? <laughs> I can't have been listening. Well... It wasn't anything very definite. Uh, a kind of a prayer. Yeah. Precisely. Uh, a, a vague supplication. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly. Huh. And, and what did he reply? That he'd see. That he couldn't promise anything. Yeah, he'd have to think it over. Oh, in the quiet of his home. Yeah, consult with his family. His friends. His agents. His correspondence. His books. His bank account. Before taking a decision. It is the normal thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think so too. All right, well, we're joined by Isaac Butler, author of the forthcoming The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, a book I'm very eager to read and uh, discuss on the show about Stanislavski and method acting. He's also the co-host of the Slate podcast, Working Isaac. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Isaac, uh, here's the thing about totems, right? When you direct Hamlet or Godot, I imagine they need to be approached both reverently and irreverently in a way. Um, You have to understand the cultural treasure that's been handed to you, and you have to both kind of destroy your preconceptions about it and make it new for a new audience. How do you feel this was handled with this one? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that, you know, the one of the director's big jobs uh, on any production, really, but especially with the classic, is having a clear point of view into the material. Um, and that has been a difficult thing to do with plays written by Samuel Beckett, because the Beckett estate is extremely controlling about what interpretational choices they will and will not allow. And they have shut down many productions, including high-profile ones, because they felt the director took too many many interpretational liberties. So in in some ways, one of the triumphs of this is that it exists at all and that we were able to navigate whatever permissions issues were required to um, do it in this way, because the characters are not dressed the way the play specifies. The environment looks nothing like as it's what it's supposed to be as described in the play. And those are the kinds of choices that the estate usually cracks down on. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an obvious, like almost screaming aptness to doing Godot in a time of pandemic lockdown. Did that work for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think the thing that does not work is the the length. This Godot 
is I, I did some Googling to try to figure this out anywhere from 15 to 35 minutes longer than almost any other production I could find a record for. Um, it's over three hours long. Um, Scott Elliott, the director, I've seen many of his plays. Pacing is really not his strong suit. He tends to let actors kind of luxuriate in the language and the pauses and not keep a firm hand on the work. And I think you see that here in that in the beginning, I think this is, it's totally delightful, actually. I mean, I'm really enjoying this phase of Ethan Hawke's career where he's having yeah. fun. He's having so much fun. He had so much fun in that True West that was on Broadway a couple years ago. He had so much fun in The Good Lord Bird. He's having so much fun here. Um, and he and Leguizamo have great chemistry. And then after a while, you you realize it's just going to kind of be this for three hours. Um, and it, it started, I'll be honest, it started to wear out uh, uh, its welcome uh, eventually, I, I found it it pretty hard to take by the end. One of the problems with Godot, because the dramatic action of it is largely static, is if you have a really great production of Godot, it's like a it's it's so brilliant. It's so much more fun and interesting and moving than like anything else out there. But if you have even like a pretty good or mediocre production of Godot, it could get really intolerable really fast. Yeah, I think you got to mark me down in the intolerable column. I, 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 and I will say, I read this play in school and loved it and found it to be like revelatory and hilarious and funny and fascinating and like a really interesting text to engage with as a written text. But I'm not sure I've ever seen it performed until really? now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I was trying to remember if I had, but I, I don't think I have. Um and I was excited about the casting, but I just, I didn't, I remember reading the play and feeling, you know, I, I understand that it was received as a mysterious object when it was first written, but feeling like it was in very firm grasp of what it was doing and, yeah. and had a pretty, pretty clear view um, and, and took all kinds of detours and byways and, and liberties with language, but um, just in, in terms of character and plot and pacing made a lot of sense. And this production makes some big choices, which are maybe the deviations from the estate's wishes that that you find exciting, but that I don't think actually makes sense. So it's all of the characters appear in Zoom boxes, and we are to understand the play as being the interactions of people through Zoom, sort of. And it seemed, you know, they're, the Hawk and Leguizamo characters are wearing masks and pulling masks up and down at various points. And it, it, there's sort of a light air of late pandemic to the whole production. But then they're also able to pass food to each other through the Zoom windows. I was really frustrated by that. Immediately. Like, what the fuck? What do you, so are you in Zoom or not? And is this a post-pandemic play or not? Like, it seems like it could be interesting to rigorously set this text in late pandemic after a year in which so many of us have been, you know, frustrated by futility and waiting for salvations of various sorts and struggling in our ability to communicate with one another on broad sociological levels and wondering what the point of it all is and struggling with depression and despair and, and human futility and, you know, like, what better play to do now? But just the general, like, what the fuck of it it made no sense. What are, are you in Zoom boxes or not? Are you in post-pandemic in separate apartments trying to connect through the alienation of technology? Well, if you can pass a fucking turnip over the laptop to the other guy, then no, you're just in the same room. So then why are you like, then why am I just not watching? Why didn't you actually sit under a tree on a stage? Why am I not just watching a filmed production? Like it made all of the choices feel arbitrary, poorly thought through and stupid. Oh, my God. I, I so totally disagree with that. I want to interject. But Dana, we have to hear from you. Overall, I would say that I liked this production. I'm not sure that it's the ultimate production, but this is such a robust text. I mean, I almost believe the opposite of what Isaac was saying about, you know, when you mess up Godot, it's really boring and you mess it up really bad. I almost feel like this is such a robust text that you can't mess it up that badly if the actors understand what they're doing. And I think these actors do understand. I'm not sure the director, as you said, Isaac, made very great pacing choices or that this Zoom Square business makes a lot of sense. But 
it's such beautiful language and it's such a simple story at its heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is a story about, you know, these these two friends who have nothing but each other, right? Didi and Gogo, these two central characters who just keep on repeating essentially the same pointless, futile day over and over and the previous day gets erased. It's It's just tragic and hilarious and it's almost hard to go wrong with it. And I wanted to say something about reading versus watching because Julia, like you, I know this as a, as a read text. I mean, I, I, I think I, we read it in grad school. I've probably seen scenes from it. And one thing that's interesting about watching it in a, in a set of Zoom squares on your computer is that you can read it at the same time. So in a separate laptop screen, I just had the text pulled up and was looking at the stage directions because Beckett, right, Isaac is is really extremely specific about stage directions sometimes and will literally say things like he crosses right, stands there, stares out at the audience, crosses back left, right? And so I was sort of seeing how they did that in the Zoom squares. And it was kind of neat to to read it and watch it both at once. But overwhelmingly, I would just say that Wallace Shawn steals the whole thing. Mm. <laughs> and we can get to his performance as Lucky, but Lucky is the one character in the movie who has only one speech and who gives this sort of long monologue in gibberish. And, you know, it's kind of the showpiece of the play. But other than that, a completely silent role, one that is dear to me because it is a role that was originally offered to Buster Keaton in the first English language oh, production, and he turned yeah. it down uh, because he didn't. His wife read it and said, this script makes no sense. <laughs> Um, and he obviously would have been an incredible Lucky, right? Because Lucky is yeah. almost completely a pantomime part. And I just think Wallace Shawn really steals the show and that of the four of them, he is the one that Beckett probably would have cast. I mean, he just has a very Beckett-like face. He's got that extremely characterful face that can do so much with nothing. I would actually love to hear an audio clip of Lucky's speech because it's, I, just, I think it's one of the high points of this production. So here's a little bit of Wallace Shawn as Lucky and Waiting for Godot. Given the existence, as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman, of a personal god, qua, 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 with white beard, qua, 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 outside time, without extension, who from the heights of divine apathia, divine athambia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly, with some exceptions, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, and suffers like the divine Miranda with those who, for reasons unknown but time will tell, are plunged in torment, plunged in fire, whose fire flames, if that continues, and who can doubt it, will fire the firmament, that is to say, blast hell to heaven. I just felt like he grasped more than anyone else the combination of tragedy, comedy, absurdity, physical comedy that the the play requires. But they were all great. I loved all four of them. And I have to say, I found this production just mesmerizing. I I kind of adored it. Um, And as to the passing turnips back and forth between it, I mean, you have the script, which which constrains you. There are things passed back and forth in the script. You are constrained also by the pandemic you're going to do a socially distanced performance involving zoom i i think it's an absurdist play to begin with there are a lot of things that you don't question in a literal fashion about the play uh anyway and so i thought fine that i'm just gonna i'm gonna go with it i mean i understand julia early on something just just rubs you the wrong way and then and then you're not going to flow with it at all i just had the opposite reaction i thought the casting was inspired i love late period ethan hawk the playful late period Ethan Hawke. I thought Leguizamo was an inspired piece of casting. I think he's terrific uh, uh, in it. I also just want to say some things about the about the play, which is, to me, this is just a play. First of all, eminently, it's it's just a piece of evidence of a time when newness and strangeness of a genuine sort, of a genuinely alienating sort, were were prized still, which is a legacy of modernism and high modernism. Um, and secondly, it's a play about about boredom and poverty, and you're meant, I think, at times to be kind of mystified, bored, um, and and its spareness is its essence. Certain spareness of of language, total spareness of of um, uh, stage props and scenery, um, and it gets it what Beckett does. That's so it's so called for. For it's always important, right? For Beckett was trying to find, I think, how much solace he could deliver with how little sentimentality, right? Like, could you drain off all sentimentality, all recourse to bullshit, and still deliver some kind of solace? Because whatever that solace is, would be real. And I think that that's, that I get that from this play every time I experience it. I, I just find it 
in, in, incredibly powerful that you could completely impoverish all of the traditional elements of language and setting and and give us just almost absolute absolutely denuded archetypes and then dana as you beautifully say they find comfort you know in one another and bizarrely in their life's tendency to repetition and that just came through to me the, the what what was supposedly or possibly boring about this production, I actually did find mesmerizing because it seems to me to get at something at the heart of the play. Well, I'm, I want to, the, the one thought I had, Isaac, was uh, this is my first pandemic Zoom theater. A lot of ah. theaters went to virtual productions this year and this is our first time talking about them. So I wonder if just before we adjourn, you could situate this a little bit in different experiments in Zoom theater because I also will say that the timing, like if I had seen this, I don't know, last October, when it felt like there were no alternate possibilities for entertainment, as opposed to at this moment of more reawakening, might I have responded to it differently? And I'm, you know, not ashamed to confess, like, I don't know, if I had been trapped in a dark theater, would I have been able to just lose myself in the performances, which are all strong? I mean, these are wonderful actors, but just having it like contained in this little box of boxes on my lap, uh, you know, some of some of the problem was clearly me. Um, but how how did this square with you, along with other virtual pandemic theater that you've watched? There have been a range of different experiments. Some people, some theaters, have taken just productions of theirs that they have already filmed for archival reasons or whatever, and put them online and you can buy a ticket to them and see them. People have done readings of plays over Zoom, sort of like a staged reading, but in Zoom boxes. Um, there are much more elaborate things. Dan Coyce and I wrote about one of them, actually, a little brief oral history sequel to The World Only Spins For, because uh, as a benefit, um, a group of artists got together and actually did a very sophisticated filming of scenes from Angels in America using, I think, like, um, you know, using careful camera angles and special effects wizardry to simulate that the people were in the same room at the same time while they were acting. So there's a really, really wide range of ideas out there. This one felt like it was sort of uh, um, halfway between the kind of really elaborate stuff that Angel's reading did and the the much more stripped away, just like we're just going to read the script online in that they were clearly in carefully designed environments that were either lit or color corrected to all look like they were in the same palette. Actually, one of the fascinating moments of the... Um, the production is when the color palette changes. It goes from warm to cold because I guess the sun is setting or something like that. Um, and it happens on all four screens simultaneously. Um, so it is, and and obviously it has very famous people in it, right? It has Black Thought from The Roots and Wallace Shawn and Ethan Hawke and John Leguizamo. So, I mean, um, it is definitely a more souped up thing than a lot of what other theaters have been able to do online. Um, yet, at the same time, to echo, I think, a, an issue that Julia had with it that I had with it, too, they have they did decide to overtly embrace the aesthetics of a Zoom meeting, right? Like, they didn't, and in a way that makes the breaking of those rules, the passing of objects back and forth, things like that, much more heightened. Like, at least for me, my awareness of it much more heightened. So, so it is sort of in between and feels to me like Julia stranded in between uh, a bunch of possible interpretive choices and ideas. Yeah, it's so high concept, the, the Zoom thing, that that in a way I might have just preferred a table read, you know, just to see them all just sitting there. And I started to realize, this goes along with maybe reading the play at the same time on a different screen, that this wasn't an extremely business-dependent production of Godot. And Godot, right, Isaac is all about the business, and a lot of the business is scripted who's going to pass a hat to whom and, you know, pa passing the turnip and the carrot and so forth. Those are all things that would be prop comedy in a real production. And so when they're not as visual, there's no point in looking at it. Yeah, it should feel like Laurel and Hardy a lot of times when you're watching it, right? It should have that feel of like these two expert clowns and they keep sort of 
whether they want to or not kind of falling into these routines and then they're kind of doing these routines and then they're trying to make sense of the world, but they, they kind of almost can't stop doing these routines. Actually, the clip we heard at the top of this segment is a great example of it. It's one of my favorite moments in the whole production, which is when they just start riffing on Godot's wealth and they're kind of egging each other on and yes, anding each other as their impressions get sillier and sillier. Um, the whole play should kind of feel, it should have a lot of moments like that, particularly physical moments like that, but you can't actually do those physical moments, you know, trapped as you are in, in different spaces and things like that. Uh, all right. Well, we agree to disagree. If you want to break the tie, uh, check it out. You can find it at thenewgroup.org um, and uh, you can purchase tickets there and watch the production and then send us an email. Uh, but Isaac, thank you so much again for joining us. That was great. And uh, stick around maybe in uh, for the plus segment. Yeah, I'd love to. Superb. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, in honor of our literary segment um, this week that we're talking about Waiting for Godot, which is as much a work of literature as a work of theater, I'm going to read a poem, and it's by a poet that I know you love, Philip Larkin. Oh he's one of your God. faves, right? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, he's my guy. Yeah, he's one of your Pantheon guys, um, who I whose work I don't know extremely well, although obviously he has some poems that almost everyone knows. He's one of those poets who, even if you don't read poetry, you probably know a couple of his poems. This isn't really one of them, though. I didn't know this one before. And I have to thank my yoga teacher, who I've actually shouted out before on the show, Ellen Olson Brown, for this poem, because one of the wonderful things she does in her Zoom yoga class is read a poem every week, the same poem every day, without any commentary. She just picks a, a great poem and reads it every day. And of course, every time you hear it, you hear it in a different way. Um, and the one this week is so uh, apropos for our moment in, in history and in the season. And, uh, and I just, I love this poem. And the rhyme, is, the rhyme scheme is just so beautiful. So The Trees by Philip Larkin. The trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they were born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. I mean, f far be it from me to be the first person to point out that I've read that poem on this show <laughs> every year for the last six, seven years, this time of year. But it is, the, it is just the greatest condensation of the language anyone ever produced. I agree. I love that poem. Just something about hearing that, hearing that at this moment, you know, it was two days, I think, after my, my second vaccine, basically the, you know, practically the day that I became street legal again to rejoin the world, to hear that poem was just extraordinary. And I think this is a moment when you know, a lot of things are sounding new, so I'm sorry if I forgot that you read this no, poem a million it's okay. times. And also, by the way, you read it beautifully, Dana. I didn't mean oh, to in any way under undercut that, undermine that. Um, all right. Julia, what do you have? Um, I have been tucking in this week to an interesting book called Uncanny Valley, a memoir. Uh, this is the Anna Weiner 
memoir of her time as a tech worker in Silicon Valley, working for various startups and observing startup culture. And it's written very interestingly. This was commented on when it came out uh, last year. You know, there's sort of no proper names. And, you know, Facebook is the, the social network everyone hates. And Instagram is the photo sharing app that was bought by the social network everyone hates. I mean, it almost has this like, Homeric quality where rosy fingered Dawn, everything, everybody has their own little, little, um, name. Um, but I'm finding it to be very readable and just an interesting window into Silicon Valley culture. That's, that's very different than the sort of founder gossip biography tell all, um, or the triumphalist founder autobiography memoir or some of the other, uh, book tropes around, uh, tech culture in Silicon Valley. I think you might really like it, Steve, actually, um, now that you're ready to think about the technification of our society with a slightly more open mind. <laughs> um, <Zane>. So <laughs> anyway, Uncanny Valley, a memoir. I've been meaning to read it for since it came out, and I'm finding it enjoyable. Uh, that does sound very cool. All right. Well, today I think I have maybe the Stevest Metcalfiest endorsement of all time. It involves Hannah Arendt and pizza. Um, first, the Arendt. There's uh, an essay in the New York Review of Books by Corey Robin, who I regard as a just a absolutely brilliant intellectual. He he writes about neoliberalism. He's uh, in some ways the most authoritative person writing about Hayek, Friedrich von Hayek right now and what he means to our time, not in an esoteric way, but in the way we are all living and being forced to live. Um, unexpectedly, he wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books comparing, of all people, Hannah Arendt and Philip Roth, who had a correspondence with one another that he's partially unearthed from the archives. Um, but also, there are echoes of one another's work. In addition to real-life admiration had for one another, there are thematic echoes between the two that Robin explores I think brilliantly. I cannot emphasize this enough. This is a brilliant essay with the additional challenge of saying something new, fresh, and not at all offensive about Philip Roth in the wake of horrific revelations about his biographer uh, that cast Roth's uh, alleged misogyny in a, in a new light. It, nonetheless, this is a, this is admiring and intelligently admiring about what Roth uh, uh, did as an artist in relation to what Arendt, Arendt was doing as a philosopher. It's about doubling and the theme of doubling in both of their works. So the essay is up on the New York Review of Books by Corey Robin. It's called uh, Arendt and Roth, An Uncanny Convergence, and uh, is very highly recommended. And then as highly recommended is a pizza parlor in Troy, New York, that I discovered years ago driving to Vermont, because if you go from my house to part points at Lake Champlain, Waze takes you this completely arcane route through the city of Troy. This was before I, I got to know Troy a little bit, because my daughters go to school there. And literally just driving in this in this totally unfamiliar neighborhood, without much apparently going on in it that I could tell from a moving car, I just pointed at a storefront and said to my family, that, I'm telling you, that is a great pizza parlor, DeFazio's in Troy. And we Googled it. And sure enough, people were like legendary, like Pizza Temple, Pizza Mecca. You have to go there. It's been there since the 1950s, not as a pizza parlor, but as an Italian uh, uh, food importer. There's a huge Italian uh, community in Troy, New York. Uh, uh, in the 1980s, uh, the adjoining storefront was turned into a pizza parlor using the ingredients from the original one, uh, the cheeses, the meats. It's now been taken over by a third generation. They're using all fresh, all organic ingredients. It is the most perfect convergence of the old and the new. And finally, last night, I was in Troy to see a girls lacrosse game. I drove over and I picked up two DeFazio's pizzas. It is so good. This pizza, is it's it's just the perfect refinement of everything platonically beautiful and perfect and this worldly garbagey about pizza. I mean, I, that sounds insulting. It's not meant to at all. Like you don't want pizza to be too good. You want pizza to retain. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just built out of elemental parts and you don't want them to become too frou-frou. It is one of the best pies, if not the best pie I think I've ever had. DeFazio's in Troy. I'll put a link to a wonderful article about the family history behind it. Those are my endorsements. Pizza and Hannah Arendt. No one's going to make fun of me for this? <laughs> it's, just, it's so Stevian. I'm struck speechless, but I, I want both right now. I want to stuff that article and that pizza in my face. <laughs> Perfect response. Uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. That was great. Thanks.
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love getting your emails. Please email us. Our theme music is from the wonderful Nick Brattel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.